Hey, everybody, send a roll for intent with the Creator's Corner. This is the uh, show where we talk about Paizo products, third-party products, really anything that tickles our fancy in the entire Paizoverse, and what you can do to integrate that sort of content into your own games, whether you are a GM or a player or a content creator. We're hoping you can find something that you like out of our show. With me today, I've got Christian Cheney. He is the rules lawyer on Roll for Intent, and he is also a player. He is the player of the Alchemist as Mordren. He is also a content creator in his own right, being the mind behind Beast Foundry. Uh, Christian, how you doing this evening? I am doing great. It's been a busy weekend already. Got lots of cool stuff in the works. So as is, we've always got some irons in the fire over here. Absolutely. It seems like you've you've always got something something you're sharing with us or uh, with the Discord at large, trying to get uh, trying to get opinions and, and sussing out feelings on things and mechanics and, and testing. Uh, how's that How's that Eldritch Knight class going, man? I am honestly. I got the art done. I'm ready to start putting the pages together. I had a little pet project that I jumped into earlier this week, though, about uh, altering the crafting rules a tiny bit. I know it's not going to be for everyone, but. Crafting is a big part of the world of Chandara and using monsters to cra- help craft items and things like that. They're, they're parts, so it was a really fun thing, so I wanted to knock that out. But yes, the Elder Tonight should be done, I think, very soon. I'm super excited to see the, the final version of that class, and we will be talking about that whenever it is live. It will be a lot of fun. But for today, we are here to talk about yet another chapter of the Lost Omens Travel Guide. We are looking at the Everyday Life chapter. Back to the whole theme of our show is we're looking at stuff that at first glance might be a little ho-hum, not as interesting, but really has the possibility of adding a bunch of extra zhuzh to your playthroughs and to your world. Adding, adding the feeling of realism, adding the feeling of being lived in, so it's not just your adventurers on a barren wasteland talking only to the people that matter to them. Oh, and this, this chapter was just absolutely fantastic because, you know, it's really about the unsung hero of any role-playing game, and those are the NPCs. They're everywhere, and they are doing everything. And in this chapter, it, you know, it right from the beginning, it, it basically covers the, the day in the life is, you know, from sunup to sundown and everything in between about what are the NPCs doing, different, you know, different occupations they might have, if it's rural, if it's urban. So there's a lot, lot of good stuff that we're going to get to dive into here today. I would expect it to be a lot of stuff. This is the longest chapter in the book. Um, by a couple pages. There's 12 pages of content in here. Only a couple of them are taken up by diagrams, but most of it is just walls of text and then a couple tables. So there is a ton of really, really good, verbose, and real-feeling content in this chapter. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're just starting off in the, you know, they kind of hit the rural setting first, and, you know, they you know, they talk about how, you know, before the sun comes up, you know, the hunters and trappers are heading out to, to start their day because, you know, after the sun comes up, the animals have bedded down for the day, so they've got to get their things going. But, you know, even as they're headed out, before the sun's even come up, they're probably going to pass by the, the bakers who have been up baking all night who are about to go to bed, but, you know, their, their workers are going to be opening their shops soon and selling these fresh baked breads, and, you know, the fishers that are just getting all of their gear ready to go hit the morning, you know, the, the lakes and such where all the fish are going to be biting in the morning, and it, it's really fun to think about these things in a sense because, you know, we've all been had our games where we've either been running or playing and you're like, oh, okay, it's it's night. And, oh, what are you guys going to do? Well, we're going to rest, but that's going to have us leave here in the middle of the night. So, okay, you go through town and it, it's, there's no one around. Well, that's not true. There There is a ton of people around doing all kinds of things. So it's just a lot more interactions if you so choose to have those things. Right. Um, we've talked about this previously that Galarian is not really a medieval world, not even really a Renaissance world. It's this quasi-Renaissance fantasy that's informed by modern sensibilities. We have this concept of the city that never sleeps, and it is true in Galarian, just as much as it is in your small town, where, you know, most of the people might be in bed. But there's people doing important work all through the night, at all hours of the day. And those people all have routines. If you have an NPC that your your characters need to go talk to, and he's a lamplighter, he has a late night. You might not get him early in the morning. He's going to be sleeping. If you try to get him after your adventuring day, he's probably going to be out at work. You have to think about these sort of things if you want to create a world that feels real. And not just a world that feels like it exists for the characters. Some people are fine with that, right? And there's nothing wrong. I'm not going to yuck anybody's yum about the way that they play their game. But these are the sort of things that you need to think about if it's important to you as a, as a GM or it's important to your characters 
that the world has additional verisimilitude, that it feels real, that it doesn't feel like it just exists as a backdrop for you to kill more monsters. Yeah, I mean, I'm realistic. You know, my my 16-year-old son who's running games for his friends, they will never use anything out of this within the next couple of years. They're teenagers. All they are concerned about is murdering the next monster, getting more treasure, buying new stuff so they can murder even more monsters. But, you know, for those classes, especially like the later classes, something like the investigator, where you're like, okay, I need to talk to this, you know, like you said, the lamplighter who may have seen something. Well, you know, he's off in bed waking him up right now. You're not going to get the best information. So, you know, it, it creates this this fun dichotomy of, you know, you have to talk to five or six different people, but they're up at all completely different hours. So, you know, your character's like, well, when am I going to sleep? I need to try to solve this really quick. And I, there's no way I'm going to be able to deal with all of these people. Instead of your normal game, you're like, okay, I go talk to him. Nope, he tells you this. He tells you, you need to go to this person. Okay, I go to this person. And, you know, so on and so forth without any, you know, real expansion as to the the realistic passage of time and things like that to take into account. The book also uh, brings into account the fact that different regions are going to have different sorts of routines, right? So if you're in a desert region, uh, farming is going to be drastically different. Hunting and trapping are going to be drastically different because Animals are not going to be active in the heat of the day, and there's not going to be as much large game to hunt, so trappers will be more uh, useful. If you're a farmer in a jungle, you have to spend more of your day dealing with the fact that the jungle is encroaching upon your arable land. So you have to spend more of your day chopping firewood or, or chopping back vines or just doing general upkeep of the land that you wouldn't have to do if you're just on a plane somewhere in Verizia. Oh, yeah, and you know, even even going past all of that, they, they, they touch on so many things in this chapter about how, you know, languages influence different regions and how those languages were born from specific ancient languages and that how, you know, if you speak kind of the common trade language, that'll get you by, but, you know, you're not really going to become friends with these people because you're going to need to speak their native tongue if you really want them to warm up to you. They just cover so many of those things in here that, yeah, I mean, this, it really shows that this one is the largest chapter. My favorite part, I think, of this entire chapter is the part on languages and ancient languages because to me, that adds that extra level of interest into a story where, okay, everybody's assumed to speak common, which is Taldane, right? But each of these communities, if you look on a character sheet for PFS, they're going to talk about, like, what ethnicity you are, like, what region you're from. And that informs what your common tongue is in an area. That should matter for RP reasons. Yes, you can speak Taldanian, right? And probably the dwarves that interact with people speak Taldanian. But they're going to have much warmer relations with somebody that comes to them and speaks Dwarven. The people in Sandpoint are going to have better relations with somebody that speaks a Varesian dialect. The people in Cheliax are going to have better relations with somebody that comes and speaks Chelaxian to them. Those languages matter in an RP-rich environment. You can, as a GM, modify your diplomacy checks, your intimidation checks, any sort of, uh, air quote, face skill by using modifiers for if people understand the languages. And this book, this chapter talks about how certain of these languages interact with others as roots. So if you really want to get down in the weeds, whether it's in Galarian or it's in your homebrew world, you can make sure that like this character is from this region and he uses idioms in his dialect that are specific to his region that aren't going to land with these people. So maybe it's harder for them to trust him. Or um, my character knows ancient Assyrian, but he doesn't speak Assyrian. Well, I know that ancient Assyrian is very similar to Assyrian. So maybe you can let him talk to somebody else if he knows Assyrian. Even some things like Cyclops, which is still spoken a little bit in the shackles, that's the root of uh, Jotun, which is the, the giant language. All of this ancient language stuff in here, everything from Aslanti to ancient Assyriani, Thassilonian. In fact, Thassilonian is the root of a lot of the Varesian languages. So you can even give your characters checks and exploration for understanding some of these ancient languages they wouldn't necessarily know, but they can recognize cues from dialects that they understand. And that's something that adds so much more to a world. And honestly, I feel like it adds so much more to a dungeon crawl other than like, do you know this language? No. Okay, can't roll on it. Anybody got a scroll of comprehend languages? Well, it, it's kind of funny that you mentioned that too, because that you know, some of those spells would actually probably be the most common spells, because when you really start to break down all of these different languages, you know, a, a race or ancestry that has, you know, goblin that could speak goblin and common, most of those other languages are, you know, going to be very, very specific to what it does. Like, you know, most humans and elves and dwarves, they're going to speak, you know, their native languages and then probably the native languages of the regions that border theirs, as opposed to, 
Oh, I speak Aklo. Like, how do you speak Aklo? I mean, why do you speak that? I just do. I speak Aklo, Celestial, and Terran. Like, okay, that's an interesting combination. Right, and, and that's something that they actually talk about, where, like, Common, which I didn't honest, I honestly didn't realize that Common was Teldane, right? Is not good for explaining complex concepts to people that simply know Common, but are fluent in another language. That is important to me, I feel like, in a world that I'm GMing or I'm playing in. That level of the language barrier, once again, it adds another level of drama and role-playing, and you can add roles and actual in-game mechanics to trying to figure out somebody is covered in blood and screaming and running to you, and they're speaking broken Taldane mixed with Dwarven. What are they trying to communicate to you? Yeah, and it's one of those fun things, too, from the role-playing side, too, to help justify you know, why you did critically fail this diplomacy check, even though you had a really great story to go along with it. Like, you know, you may have simply used some phrases that don't fit here, that maybe they're used by people that these people hate, and that's why it, you know, went off, it didn't go off well. So it, it helps even your, your player characters kind of, okay, this is justification of why, and as, especially as you get older and you play these games, you know, more and more, you've played for 10 years and 20 years, the, it's a lot of fun to actually roleplay those failures and run with it, instead of just, oh, I didn't get it, dang it, and, you know, move on. I really love the idea of complex concepts not being able to be uh, explained in Taldane and how communities may be a little bit more standoffish to people that don't understand their language because you could even have the local populace treat your party that doesn't understand anything other than Taldane as simpletons and kind of use very rudimentary speech patterns and talking to them maybe speak to them as if they were children and you can lose a lot of the nuance uh, they might not know the words for a couple things so you have to kind of work around backwards unless you have somebody that can work as a translator it's some really interesting concepts that can be explored just from honestly this is like nine paragraphs within this chapter that can add so much flavor to your game yeah, there's, there is so much you can do. And even even moving on to the interior designs for the houses, it, it shows you like a, a desert house. And that's, you know, even for player characters, you know, there are times you go into houses for various reasons. You're exploring someone's murder or there's ghosts or werewolves or what have you. To kind of have a peek into what you would expect to see for the interior of these houses is nice because we only have our own experiences to draw from. So, you know, everything just kind of looks like, you know, what you're used to. So to be able to explain this to your players in a more realistic manner for the people of the world is a lot of fun. Right. The, the the version of the house they have here, they have a rural house and they have an urban house. Uh, and the rural house is in a desert. And, you know, before reading this, I would have had to do some serious research to try to figure out how a desert, you know, permanent structure looked like in this time period. You know, I wouldn't have known to think, okay, your party walks to the door and they push aside a curtain. It feels wet yeah. on your hand, like it's been soaked in water. And you push it back and the threshold dips down into the house. And as you walk in, you can smell cooking, wafting through the air. You can see a low cover of smoke. Uh, from the kitchen because they don't use chimneys because it more evenly distributes heat throughout the house. There's so many tiny little things you can add to paint a picture to get your players involved and really to get your own juices flowing for creativity and embodying the NPCs that would be living in this space. It is so much cool little things. And even if you don't use this specific thing in your stories, it gives you ideas of things to add more realistic portions or think about, well, how would this person live in a place like this? It's a jungle. What would the house be like? You know, these places might not have open windows because biting flies like to come into them. So they have little slits that they can close up. There's just all these little things that just seeing how somebody else thought through something can help you inform your own thought process on how to think through something. Yeah, and under the, the urban home where it's kind of a more forested design, you know, they're talking about how you basically have your gutters from the roof that lead into barrels because they capture all of that water. They can't let that water go, which is just kind of fun in a sense too. Like, okay, if there's a fire, you're like, oh, where are we going to get water? And you're like, well, actually, there's water almost by every single house just sitting there. So <laughs> there's like, it's not a problem, actually. So it, that stuff alone, those, those tiny little things, and just like, like you said, to being able to describe that when you go into these homes and interact with these NPCs, the, the small things, just like the, the wet curtain is such, such a fun thing to just be able to have at your disposal and as a tool to use. I actually think my favorite thing, and it was probably my favorite thing in this entire book, 
and I saw it immediately flipping through housing costs. There is a table that tells you if you want to buy a home, this is the cost. And I think for people that you know, really live in certain areas or, you know, their characters are always in these areas, this is something that actually characters are interested in. Like, you know, we get all this wealth and, oh, we just think about, oh, it's just for your character, for armor and weapons. And you're like, well, what, you know, what about these fancy lords? Why, why don't these rich people have all of this crazy gear? And it's like, well, you're wearing functionally several luxury homes on your person by running around with all of this crazy expensive gear when you're high level. Not only do they have housing prices for like just buying a house, but it's the housing price, the upkeep per month on the house. They have rental prices for similar structures. These are based on like a certain number of rooms. And if you want to add rooms, there are modifiers to increase the price based on number of rooms. There's a modifier for the price if it's in a urban setting because space comes at a premium. Uh, and there's even modifiers for having an apartment instead of a home, which is roughly half the size and a little more than half the gold cost. Uh, a lot of really interesting things for making your characters feel like they're living in a world. You know, maybe before you were an adventurer, before you got caught up in whatever you're dealing with, Think of, think of if you're playing Agents of Ed Edgewatch and you're an officer, you're living in Absalom, you have to make ends meet somehow. How are you doing that? Is it through your Edgewatch salary? Okay, well, how do we apply your Edgewatch salary to your, you know, nightly day-to-day, your day-to-day costs, including how much it costs to eat, how much it costs to sleep? It's so very cool to be able to point to a table that exists in the world to make the world actually exist. Yeah, and you get these, and even when you find treasure and you're going back to sell it and your, your characters are in this village, you're like, oh, we found you know, 300 gold pieces worth of stuff. You're like, that's three homes in this village. There, there isn't anyone, you know, if you're going to throw out a bunch of money, that, that's, a, that's a good way to get attention for certain. You can just walk in and you're, oh, here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bribe someone. What are you going to do? How much are you going to give them? I'm going to give them 50 gold pieces. You're like, that's half, a, half of a, you know, a poor thatched hut. So it's, it really brings a lot of perspective into the world, too. I'm glad you brought that up is, you know, even though it's a bribe or, you know, like a payoff. But they talk about trade in here and how trade operates differently between if you're in a rural community versus an urban community, whereas a rural community will be more prone to doing barter and uh, the security of a friendly handshake. Uh, as opposed to contracts and gold, right? They might not really be interested in gold because yes, while it's a you know, fungible and, and something that they can transport easily, it might not be useful to you. They specifically call out something related to a blacksmith and a farmer. Why would the farmer convert a bushel of potatoes to gold to give the blacksmith when the blacksmith is going to eat anyway? So let's think of an equ- equitable arrangement. Uh, we have, uh, you know, a bushel of potatoes or two bushels of potatoes. Can uh, I get my shovel prepared with that? Absolutely. And you know, that's not some weird contrivance. That sort of thing still happens in smaller communities, right? If you knew a guy that can do something for you, and he knows that you can help him out with something else, there's always going to be an arrangement that can be made. And explicitly saying that is so important in rules expansive systems like 2E, because people get so, I don't want to say coddled, but they get coddled by the fact that there's rules for everything, that if you don't explicitly say there's a rule for this, people are going to be like, nah. Yeah, I live in a small rural area, and that stuff still happens all the time. Like, hey, you know, <laughs> I, I saw you have that trailer that's been sitting out in your yard, and it hasn't moved for three years. Well, what will you give me for it? And I said, well, you know, I've I'm really kind of interested in your wood splitter. Like, done. Trade. Here you go. <laughs> I mean, that stuff happens all the time to this day. And it talks about how sometimes those goods are going to be harder to find. And sometimes adventuring goods or goods that your adventurers would look for are going to be harder to find in a rural town because there might not be a trade route that gets out here to do that. Um, you also have to consider back to this whole uh, everyday life section of people's day to day. When a farmer is done doing all of this stuff in the morning that he has to do on the farm, he's probably going to come into town and set up a stall and you'll be dealing directly with the person that's making your food, you know, that's growing your food. That doesn't happen in a city. It uh, takes too much time to come into the city and then sell your crops. So they introduced the concept of grocers in the city and more specialized artisans and crafters and stuff. You might have 10 different blacksmiths in a city and one of them does swords primarily and one of them does armor primarily. And this guy's really good with boots. And this guy does, uh, does daggers. And this guy does warhammers. Whereas if you're in a little town, well, we got one blacksmith and he mostly makes plows, but he can probably fix your sword up. <laughs> yeah, he can repair your shield okay, but he'll, it might take him another day or two because he's already backed up on repairing 15 hoes. <laughs> hoes everywhere. Hose everywhere. And, you know, even they go so far as to even get into the fashion of the rural and urban areas. And, you know, it, it's kind of fun and interesting to see what, what you can expect to find on people. 
that while they live in the you know, the, the rural kit is you know, the, the leather goods, the coats and the trousers and good boots and aprons. And you know, most people be wandering around with a tool belt that has a couple of things because you're in that rural setting and there isn't, you know, someone to come take care of everything. So, so many people have to be a jack of all trades that people often are carrying all of these things with them. These individuals' clothes have very high levels of utility. There's not a lot of uh, personalization on them. They call out things like bandanas as being personalized and sometimes having a cultural or personal religious significance. And satchels. So that's a fun way that you can help differentiate your individual NPCs is that they tend to personalize satchels because it's a relatively large canvas that doesn't get banged up nearly as much as their apron or their duster or their boots, which probably that's a large amount of the money that they have made in a given time is on these highly utilitarian, highly functional clothes that'll last years and years and years. It's also really interesting to consider if you are in a farm community and bandits show up and the farmers and stuff start trying to fight. What do they have on them to fight with? Right? Does the carpenter come out? He's got a hammer on his belt. All right, we're going to use it. Uh, blacksmith comes out. He's got some tongs in his hands. He's going to use it. Or whatever people have on their belts. Thinking about that sort of thing can breathe additional life into combat and not just RP if you have the townspeople being beset upon by something. Yeah, you know, he, he might have taken off his leather coat, wrapped it around his arm, and is basically using it as a makeshift buckler. Or yeah, there's all kinds of fun things you can do to, to liven things up like that a tiny bit. The religion chapter was kind of cool for each of the uh, urban and the rural to talk about the differences between rural... Ru- Rural worship and <laughs> urban worship. Rural worship. Yeah, rural, rural religion. religion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but because these, these small little towns don't have money to make all these temples to all these gods. And since we're in a world that there's, you know, dozens, if not scores or hundreds of gods and imperial lords and demigods and all this nonsense that people could worship, there's a big multi-purpose worship facility, essentially. And the priest is probably a priest of a rastal because that's, you know, God of the harvest, God of the hunt, revered a lot in rural communities. But he probably knows the rights for Desna and Torag and uh, Caden Kalian and half a dozen other peoples and their shrines and everybody respects the worship of all these different people. And you'll actually sometimes have in these rural communities more worship of evil gods in secret because they feel that they can protect them uh, more actively at times. And that can be a really interesting plot hook. You kind of see it in uh, Feast of Ravenmore from 1E where there was a cult in a town, an evil cult, that they were all pretending to worship, I believe, Desna. And were actually yeah, worshiping some like effigy of Desna that wasn't quite right. Yeah, Golan- Golander, I believe, is what it was. But that's something really cool that you can have your NPCs that are ostensibly worshiping but are actually members of a cult. You can have them essentially with the deceptive worship feet. And any time that they're showing an outward show of their religion, they got to roll a deception against your party. And that gives your party another way mechanically to find something that doesn't rely on a story contrivance. You know, if the town drunk can't keep his deception high enough because he's hammered, you're going to find out something's up sooner than if it's just like, well, you have to have been in the right place at the right time to see the right people do the wrong things. Yeah, you know, it's funny, something that stuck with me, and I want to say the movie was Inglorious Bastards, where they have, you know, there's a, a guy pretending to be a spy, and he holds up three fingers, and he holds his, you know, thumb, middle, and index finger up for three, which is, in that movie, is a very German thing to do, where Americans would just hold up their, their three middle fingers, and, like, they immediately knew that this guy was a spy when he did that. And so it's just, that's always stuck with me, of how, you know, these tiny, tiny little slip-ups could actually have these monstrous effects. So to me, I've always, I've always remembered that when you're rolling ones and rolling 20s and the little things that that could mean. But also on the, the topic of the, the rural religion is the, something that struck me, they don't really mention it, but you know, you might also have these settings where this one singular house of worship, there might be a, you know, a clergyman of you know, one God and a clergyman of another God. And they might just divvy this up. Like, yeah, we are here on these days and they are here on these days. So, and, you know, or maybe there's four or even five. So if you're looking for someone specific, you can add a little variety when you go in there. And it's just a lot of fun things you can do to experiment and play around with it. And just to make every town feel a little different. That's contrasted with the uh, urban view of religion, where there's usually a religious district and everybody and their uncle has a shrine or temple or church or cathedral on top of all the other different mystery cults and cults that may operate in secret or in the open uh, that aren't necessarily um, 
you know, they aren't necessarily looked on favorably, but they aren't stopped as long as they're not hurting people. So you can do a lot of interesting things with mystery cults and secret cults, which I know have been fodder for games for years. But giving more framework to, like, if you're in a city, you will find a cult that you're looking for real easy because they mostly operate in the open. Because it's just, you know, a thing, as long as you're not hurting somebody. Uh, and, you know, that can be a really interesting plot hook for a PC as well. You know, I'm part of this cult of Desna that we actually believe that she becomes a real butterfly when you sleep and lands on you like an Ambien commercial. And that can be your cult. <laughs> yeah, they, you know, and even something as simple as when you're in the urban areas and there are all of these religious districts and they go in and they talk about how, you know, with this means the, there's more money flowing through the church, which means they have larger outreach programs and soup kitchens and things like that. So it, it becomes more commonplace that your, your characters would be at the church a lot more looking for information because they have volunteers all over the city doing things. So this information kind of will flow through them. I really want to touch on one more thing um, that I thought was really cool. Because once again, we're talking about these chapters that are all written as if written by somebody that knows about this stuff, uh, like a, a person in the world. This one, they talk about a little bit the food of rural towns versus urban, specifically for like taverns and things. And this is something really interesting back to making a town have a specific flavor. Any region you're in, I don't care if you're in the US, you're in, the, in Europe somewhere, you're in South America, every region you're in, where you live, where you live is known for something. Everywhere has something that they are proud of, whether it's an agricultural product, whether it's a specific way to prepare food, lean into that. Make some really weird dish that lives in this tavern or in this town. Maybe there's three taverns in the town and they all make a specific kind of beer. They have one in here that they talk about. There's a beer that's brewed with a dolphin testicle in it. Uh, some really weird thing and everybody's fighting for what the best thing is. And maybe your adventurers are from the city and they can't handle the rural cuisine because it just, it's different because they talk about how in these big urban centers, they have specialties and stuff. But the cuisine is way more generic. It's way more toned down palette-wise. It's like if you were to go into, say, an Indian restaurant at lunch for the buffet and everything's toned down a little bit. But then you go back at night and you order your favorite dish and it tastes a little bit different because they know if you're ordering something, you want that. You're not just sampling. It's the same sort of thing, right? The cities are way more genericized. The towns have a lot of vibrance and flavor and differentiation between the places. Lean into it. Lean into your agricultural products for things like festivals and cuisines and special twists on regional cuisines and interesting rivalries between places. It can be a really good way to add story hooks for simple things like, oh, there's some vandals saying like, um, Billy's pasty shop sucks. Go to Tom's. That sort of thing can be interesting little plot hooks that can lead to other things. And that doesn't happen without having that, uh, you know, that regional cuisine that everybody loves. But who has the best one? Is it Pat Steaks or is it Geno Steaks? Are you Geno's man, you're Pat's man? Same sort of deal. And that's adding more flavor to your world. Yeah, I like the, uh, just kind of the last one in each of the urban and rural areas too, is the entertainment. And, you know, with your rural, it's about festivals and, you know, things like that. And it, it really doesn't go too much beyond festivals, really. And then under your urban entertainment, it, you know, there's museums and there's art galleries and operas and coliseums. It's just all of these different things. So it's kind of fun to just see those differences, which, you know, if, you know, a lot of people either live in rural or urban settings on earth and, you know, they don't get to see a lot of the other side of it. So it's just kind of a little fun reminder about those things. Yeah, similarly to that, they talk about how communities grow up in these areas, whereas like in these smaller rural communities where physically people are together, the communities grow up around proximity more than around interest. Whereas in the urban settings, they grow up more around interest than proximity. You might go into a town and want to play chess with somebody or talk to somebody that knows a lot about chess. They'll direct you to a person. You go into Magnamar and say, hey, I'm looking for somebody to play chess with. They'll be like, all right, well, you go out down in this district and this group meets every Wednesday and uh, they play chess and you can talk to this grandmaster and there's a bunch of them. They'll probably fight over who's the best one. It's a way different feel of community um, because people will separate themselves, separate based on their own uh, assigned identity versus the identity of simply being in a place. And you can use that in your NPC interactions as well. Yeah, and there's there's little sidebars here that cover traveling and adventures in rural versus urban settings. So there, there's a lot of little things in here that 
are, are really handy, regardless if you use Galarian or not, because all your fantasy worlds, for the most part, are very similar. Just like you said, they're that quasi-high uh, magic, uh, not quite Renaissance, not quite medieval. So it, they're very, very similar. So this works for almost anywhere. Oh, the whole concept of adventurers absolutely trashing a local economy because they're bringing in these, you know, 17th level items that are worth an entire city block worth of houses just tickles me pink. I think it's so great. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that little bit. I was, that. I was kind of cracking up because that's my players do that all the time. Like, first thing, they walk into this little town. Okay, it actually happened in a game today that I was running in the Discord for our Discord members where they go into this little village and it is a third level village. You can get, um, you can get common third level gear that's non-magical or some consumables up to third level. And they have like, oh my God, they must have had like, 800 gold pieces worth. So, okay, we want to sell all this stuff. I'm like, you're not selling it here. <laughs> right, yeah, that's that's more than what the uh, blacksmith shop does in revenue in 10 years. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that about wraps it up. This one has gone way longer than the other ones, but it makes sense because it is way longer than the other chapters. Um, so if that's all we got, Christian, I'm gonna let you sign us off this week. All right, well, everyone, uh, it's been fun. We are covering the travel guide. We have a few more uh, releases that we're gonna be doing before this book is actually available online and in your favorite local game store. And in the meantime, please check us out. We have a weekly podcast that we are running the Abomination Vaults Adventure Path that airs every Monday. And we have a very active community discord. We run games. We are playing the Kineticist playtests. And it's just a really great time. So we really do hope you'll you'll check us out. Yep, that's rollforintent.com slash discord for our discord. You can find us on rollforintent.com as well. And uh, you can find Christian's content from Beast Foundry at beastfoundry.com and on patreon.com slash beastfoundry. Roll for Intent also has a Patreon. You get some cool benefits for being a part of it, adding things to the game. It's a lot of fun. So, check us out, listen to our show, or don't, I'm not your mother. I hope you enjoyed this, though. Have a good one, y'all. Later.